glad that you're with us on this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, we are going to dive into the, the Word of God, and we'll be talking about the Word of God quite a bit in this 45 minutes or so. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. We came all the way through verse 17 last week, and we'll be picking up in verse 18 this week. We saw chapter one introduce the first test of fellowship. So chapters one and two deal mostly with fellowship with God. Chapters three through five deal mostly with sonship or being born of God. The first test of fellowship that we saw was the test of obedience. We saw the test of love in the first half of this chapter two, and we'll see the test of truth this week in the second half of chapter two. Verse 18 says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. This phrase, the last hour, um, at Pentecost, we entered into what scripture calls the last days or in this case, the last hour. Paul instructs the church at Corinth that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, in reference to the communion. So that tells me one thing, um, that this age is marked at the end by the Lord's coming. We are living in a time that spans from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ. And we proclaim his death by taking communion together until he comes again. That was from 1 Corinthians 11, 26. Um, This last hour refers more to a uh, era instead of a strict chronology of days. Okay, so it's the last hour, that word aura is an era. From John's day up until now, the church has thought that they were living in the last days. And I believe this is correct. And I believe this is by design. Now, obviously, we're closer now than we ever have been to the end. Um, All the more reason to live like it. And this anticipation of the imminent return of Christ creates this sense of urgency in believers It creates a sense of urgency for the things of God. We saw in verses 16 and 17, not to live by the world's standards. Don't turn your affections towards the world. And this is what the expectation of an imminent return creates. This will to live towards the spirit. And even in our text this morning, John suggests that he was living in the last times. He cites many antichrists as his reasoning for believing that it is, in fact, the last hour. He says, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, I also believe that we're living in the last hour, along with John. And we continue to see the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the world, among other things that Jesus did warn us about. We see some uniting 
of the world's economic systems. These digital currencies, for one, are used to bring everyone together. And it's presented as a helpful tool to get relief funds out to various people groups. But what it's doing is bringing us all together under one government. So in light of these current events and other prophecies that we're seeing fulfilled, um, I'm personally convinced that we are, in fact, living towards the end. The word antichrist is interesting. Um, There's a couple of roots that it comes from, anti and Christos. The prefix anti, anti, comes from the Greek language, and it has a couple of meanings in itself. The first is opposed to or against. The second is in the place of or a substitute for. And the Antichrist will fulfill both of these definitions. He will be opposed to Christ, and he will also try to set himself up as Christ. He will both both oppose him and offer himself instead of Christ. He is literally the instead of Christ, the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4 tells us that the Antichrist will exalt himself as God. It says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now we know that Satan is a great counterfeiter. He's not a creator and he's not an originator, but he is simply a counterfeiter. He likes to take the things of God, which start pure, and he twists them to his own agenda. It's sadistic. The Antichrist will be no different. It will be a twisting of the true Christ, the instead of Christ. I don't expect him to present himself openly as a satanic figure. There's not much deception to that. But rather, I'm sure that he'll come as a popped collar, you know, maybe white collar, kind of GQ type of guy. Um, He's not going to present himself as what he actually is. We know that he will set himself up as God, probably come as a benevolent looking, probably well-dressed and charming. Remember, this is a deception that we're talking about, and the end times are characterized by great deceptions, and Satan doesn't want you to know that you're being deceived. Now, I do believe if you are rooted in the word of God, That is a safeguard against deception. And we'll talk about that more as we progress into this. Later in his epistle, John clarifies that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. So when he says the spirit of the Antichrist here in chapter 2, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. And we know he's writing partially as a reaction to the thoughts of Gnosticism in his day, that Jesus was merely a spirit and did not actually come in the flesh. So he's speaking out against that and correcting 
Christians in the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He says, even now, many antichrists have come. And he's here referring to the spirit of the antichrist, not the antichrist, the person who is yet to come. Um, In fact, we still see the spirit of antichrist at work today. And there are different ways that this can play out, but there are those who claim that the Christ spirit is intrinsic within every man. This belief has its roots in the thought of Eastern mysticism, but it presupposes that the creator and the creation are of one essence. We know this is not taught in the Bible. Um, In fact, it can be very easily refuted by the Bible. In Isaiah 31.3, it reads, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. So this verse draws a very clear ontological distinction between man and God. There is a distinct difference there. This can also play out as Uh, those who actually claim to be the Christ, Jesus Christ. All it takes is a quick Google search to find loads and loads of people who have claimed to be Jesus. Now, being where we are today, uh, being rooted in the word, we know that none of those people are Christ. We know the one true God, um, and that is recorded in scripture. Now, some will also tell you that Jesus will come again um, from a miraculous birth. That is not going to be the case. The second coming of Christ will not be like his first. If we see someone coming with a miraculous birth, that should tip a light off in your head. But a light bulb should go off, maybe an alarm. Like this is not Jesus coming again. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, It was said that his second coming will be like this, becoming with clouds and great glory. So we know how he's going to come back, and it's not uh, from being born on the earth again. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Lots of us's and they's there, but we'll get through it. He's not saying that some of us, the Christians, became antichrists when they left the church. He's saying that those people were always um, following after the spirit of antichrist, but they were just made known when they left out from us. Um, Nothing really changed but the company that they kept. John and company were able to see that once they had gone out of the church, that they never actually were among them. And Paul warns of these false teachers, saying, In latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He says that they will depart from the faith, just like John says they have gone out from us. Those false teachers that rise up from among the church are the most dangerous. Um, It's easy 
to pick out someone who directly opposes you. It's easy to see that person, recognize that they're, hey, he's not with me. He must be my enemy. It's harder to decipher who is against you when they try to appear to be with you. And that is the real danger for the church. In Acts 20, 29, and 30, Paul warns of this same thing, the wolves in sheep's clothing. He uses that wolf and sheep analogy to get across his point. And along the same lines, it is so important that we be Bereans. Acts 17.11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So when we say be a Berean, that's what this means. Search the scriptures. Don't believe anything I say. Go back to the word of God and verify it. And that goes with anything that you hear anywhere. Don't believe it, but test it against the word of God. Anything that's taught by myself or anyone else should be confirmed in scripture. And this is how we make sure that we're not being led astray. You know, we're talking about false teachers, antichrists, the spirit that says that Jesus was not of the flesh. And this is how we guard against that. We are Bereans. We search out the word of God. And this is really the truth of the matter. If the church as a whole was more grounded in their word, then the false teachers would have such a more difficult time leading us astray. And that is the simple fact of it. Now, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy 4 with me real quick. In verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here, Paul, the aged apostle, was writing to Timothy, a younger leader of the Ephesian church. And Paul was providing instruction on how to lead this church well. Chapter 4 is the last chapter in 2 Timothy, and Paul is leaving Timothy with one last charge before Paul gives Timothy this list of housekeeping items. What is that charge that Paul gives to this young leader? It is preach the word. How important it is. In verse 3, you see the word for. For indicates a cause and effect. Paul is charging Timothy with preaching the word because he knows that some will depart from the faith. And this teaching the word or preaching the word is the antidote 
for falling away. If we are grounded, then we will remain that way. I simply cannot overstate the importance of staying in the word of God, and especially as we draw near the end. Uh, The end is characterized by deception. And I believe also that the worst deceptions are still yet to come. They are still lying ahead of us. The word is our anchor. It is true north, if you will. The inerrant, infallible word of God. And you know, we're no longer in a position where we have to rely on the words of a prophet to hear what God has to say to us. We can simply open his written word and we have it laid out for us. We are in a truly unique point in history. So let's take advantage of that, uh, use it to strengthen us in the faith. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit to discern spiritual things. And this statement is in contrast to the Antichrist. Uh, You see all of the they's in the couple verses leading up to this. Now you see you. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. And you actually do have a supernatural ability through the Holy Spirit to know spiritual things. Uh, It's crazy. The Holy Spirit does work to convict us of wrongs, of sin that we have committed. And he also allows us to discern the spirit behind certain things. Have you ever been watching or listening to something um, and you think, man, that's just off. There's just something about that that's not quite right. And you may not even know what's not right about it. You just have that inkling, that unction, that, man, something is off about this guy or about this message. This, This experience is that anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's teaching you something. And it says that we have this anointing from the Holy One, and we know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. In verse 20, he says no. And he uses a very specific word in the Greek. That's oida. In contrast with gnosko, which is an experiential knowledge, oida is an intuitive knowledge. You know these things intuitively. It's not because you've ever experienced it before, but because you have this anointing. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. John doesn't write to these Christians because they haven't heard the gospel before. That's what he wrote his gospel for. But he writes for several reasons, 
And we talked about all of the reasons he writes on the first Sunday we got into 1 John. But he draws a clear distinction here between the truth and a lie. You'll hear people say that as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. That sincere attitude will lead you to God. That's a bunch of baloney. That is a lie. There are plenty of people who are sincerely wrong. That is the fact. And you've probably heard that all religions lead to God. And by extension, that all religions are true when followed sincerely. That's a lie. You see, I say that there's one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus. If somebody comes along and says that all religions are true, well, but I just excluded all other religions by my religion. So if my religion is exclusive and I'm right, then no one else can be right with me. It's a logical fallacy there. Every religion cannot be right. The bottom line is this. There is truth and there are lies, and the Holy Spirit, through this unction and through his word, helps us discern between the truth and the lies. So he's talking about lies. He tells us in verse 22 um, of a specific lie. He says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So this is the lie, that Jesus is not the Christ. And whoever denies Jesus as the Christ does not have the Father. There are many who will say, oh, of course I believe in God, but I don't really see the need for this Jesus guy. You got it all wrong. That is not the God of the Bible. Now, there are plenty of gods. David says gods of the heathen are many. You can place your faith, you can give your worship to a number of gods. There's only one true God, and that God has begotten the Son. They are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Some people say, yes, Jesus was a good man, even a great prophet, but not the Son of God. This is a fallacy. You see, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He professed to be God. If he said such a thing and he was just loony, he just thought himself to be God, well, then he's a lunatic. You know, you you can't trust anything he says. If he did not actually think that he was God, but he was just lying about it, he's a liar. How could you say a liar is a good man? But if what he said was true, then he is Lord, and he deserves our praise. 
God gave his only son to suffer for our sins. The father is so intimately connected to the son that you cannot believe the truth about one to the exclusion of the other. We can find Jesus on every single page of the Old Testament. Even back in the days of Israel, wandering through the wilderness, um, when they received the law, Jesus is there. It points to the substance of the law. The Jew who says, oh, I just pray to God. I just hope that he accepts me based on my works, based on me following the law. They are woefully misled. They are off track. Because even in their law, there had to be a blood sacrifice to bring them in communion with God. There had to be that blood shed. Without it, there's no way to get to God. You need that mediator. Well, I just hope that God accepts me because of my good works, you know, because I'm a pretty decent guy. No. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Besides, written on Isaiah 64, 5 and 6, says that our works are like filthy rags to God. They certainly are not useful for salvation. We have been separated from God through our sins, and there's nothing that we can do to eternally bridge that gap. It most certainly takes the sacrifice of that perfect lamb of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when one denies the sufficiency of that lamb to cover their sin, they know not the father who sent the son. He is Antichrist who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the son has the father also. 24, therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the son and in the father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. In verse 24, he says, from the beginning. And this refers specifically to when these Christians first heard the gospel, the true, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of their life in Christ. If they continue to allow the gospel to abide in them, then they also will be abiding in Christ. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. In John 11.25, John's gospel, he records the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He promises everlasting life. And this promise of eternal life is spoken of throughout John's gospel. It's actually a major theme that we find in the gospel. And it's summed up in John 3.15. 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Some additional references to this promise of eternal life include John 3.36, John 6.40, John 17.2, and 3. And I'll remind you that Jesus also said in John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Fruit cannot be produced apart from the vine. If we are the branch off of the vine, we need only to abide in him to produce fruit. There's no amount of straining on our part that can produce our fruit simply by abiding. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. John here is referring to verses 18 through 25, what he just wrote down, where he provides instruction about these coming deceptions. He's writing to these Christians in order that they may not be deceived. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But, here, contrasts the following with the preceding. That anointing of the Holy Spirit guides us in discerning between our own, the Christians, and those who try to deceive us. There's a distinction here. Now, verse 27 should not be taken to mean that Christians have no need at all for pastors and teachers. That's not what's being said. Otherwise, Ephesians 4, 8 through 16, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, would not be in the Bible. There would be no need for that. Rather, he is saying that believers must be taught through the word, by the spirit, and should not always depend on human teachers. The Christian who is in fellowship with God should be able to sit alone with the word of God and be taught by the Holy Spirit. I shouldn't really be teaching you anything new on Sunday mornings. What I'm doing here is confirming what the Spirit has already been teaching you throughout the week in your personal studies. 1 Corinthians 2.13 reads, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And that's the kind of teaching that the Holy Spirit is doing. It's spiritual. When I'm up here, I'm not actually teaching you. Did you know that? 
I'm talking, but I can talk for days and days, and you will not get anything from it if the Spirit is not working to teach you. When the Spirit is applying His Word to your heart, that is when you are being taught. Without the Spirit working in that way, you'll hear nothing. You know, Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. Of course, he's not talking about physical ears, spiritual ears. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, this time verses 14 through 15, says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Have you ever tried to explain how you know that you're saved to an unbeliever? It's tough. It's tough because they don't have the spirit that is teaching them, that is giving them the unction. They ask, well, how do you know? I just know that I know. How do you know that I know? I don't know. I just know. And it's this cycle, but they cannot understand what you're saying. Um, And it can be frustrating, but they do not have that same unction or that intuitive knowledge that you do by the Holy Spirit. We cannot learn the things of the Spirit apart from the Holy Spirit. And he teaches us those things. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, earlier we talked about the expectancy of the Lord's coming. We know that this should inform the way that we live. And now John writes, and now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be ashamed when the Lord appears. that's, That's one of the last things that I would ever want. So how do we not be ashamed? Well, I would be ashamed if I was doing something wrong when he came. You know, I would really prefer to be up here teaching when he comes. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. What you don't want to do is be caught with your pants down, so to speak. Um, We don't want that, but we want to be confident. We want to be confident before him, not be ashamed before him at his coming. A mother, when she's pregnant and it's coming time to have that baby, she goes into nesting mode. And we all know what that is. You go around the house, start cleaning up, prepare a little baby room, get the crib. You tell your husband to get the crib ready, Uh, everything's situated, maybe paint the walls. Uh, Everything's vacuumed real nice, and the husband loves it because the house is always clean. Um, But that mother, 
is expecting something. She's expecting a new member of the family. And she wants that house to be ready. Whenever that baby comes, everything is situated. This is much like we expect Jesus to come at any minute now. And truly, I believe he could come at any minute. If that is what's informing our actions, we should be cleaning up. If there's something in us that's not pleasing to him, man, that should be the first thing to go. Get the cobweb out of the corner of the room before you start worrying about dusting the baseboards. You know, it's, it's these things that we worry about when this is on the forefront of our mind. It makes us live for the spirit more than the flesh. And I believe this is by design. The imminent return of Christ has been on the forefront of the mind of the church for centuries. Um, And I believe that is God's intention. Like I mentioned earlier, this expectancy is a purifying influence in the church. What will I be doing at his return? I can't really say, but I want to be furthering his kingdom. I don't want to be in opposition to that. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. You know, and this just makes good logical sense to us. It makes sense that God alone is righteous. We know that to be true. Therefore, anyone who is righteous is his. Logic. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, we saw John warn about the anti-Christian teachers who are already in the world. And he tells us how to recognize these guys. Okay, so going back through, hitting the high points now. We recognize them because they have left the fellowship of the truth. Seen in verse 19. We recognize them because they deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh. We see that in verse 22. And we recognize them because they try to deceive believers. We see that in verse 26. You see, a healthy body is able to purge itself of toxins. And the church body is no different. When one goes out from the church, they reveal that they were never part of the body to begin with. But we run into problems when these wolves in sheep's clothing are comfortable to dwell in the church. They're comfortable to remain among the flock. Preach the word. Paul commanded Timothy. And this is how we maintain this healthy, functioning body. Preach the word. Stay in the word this week and let it transform you. You know, there's so many outside influences. There's so many voices that are trying to take your attention. I just encourage you to stay in the word. Let God's word be the loudest voice in your mind. We've got access to 
all this information, all these different sources trying to put their truth in our heads. Uh, it's constant. You can't turn on the radio without an ad playing. Somebody wanting you to buy their product, listen to their music. Let the word of God be what's influencing you. Let it soak into your very being and let the spirit teach you this week. Let's close our study in a word of prayer.